and welcome to episode four of Talking Peace, the podcast of Northern Ireland Alternatives. Today's episode is a very special one in that it features one of the most prominent writers and advocates of restorative justice, Professor John Braithwaite. Professor John Braithwaite is a good friend of Northern Ireland Alternatives and has visited here on numerous occasions and has used the work facilitated by Northern Ireland Alternatives in some of his keynote addresses to highlight good practice whenever he's traveling around the world. John was over with us recently here in Belfast for the Restorative Practice Forum Northern Ireland International Conference and we recorded his keynote speech and his keynote speech features the work of our Bangor office in particular. So we hope you enjoy the, the the input from John. The audio quality will be slightly different to the majority of our podcast just due to the way that it was recorded, but we hope that it comes across well and we hope that you enjoy what John has to share. John is a, a criminologist, particularly interested in the role of restorative justice. He doesn't want the criminal justice practice to stigmatize offenders. He says it only makes the crime problem worse. He argues that restorative justice enables both offenders and citizens to repair the social harm caused by crime. And he also knows a thing or two about restorative justice here in Northern Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome back Professor John Braithwaite. And I, I 
actually do believe that, that police are, are, are reasonably competent at knowing who are those repeat offenders who are responsible for most of the burglaries and most of them, but are in, in a position where they don't have sufficient evidence to prove that. So this was a story about, well, one of the things they do these days, and it's a testimony to alternatives, Northern Ireland's improved relationship across the decades with the police here, that the police will come to us and say, person uh, X, young person X, is someone who we believe is committing uh, a lot of burglaries. You know, we have good intelligence on this, but, and it's just a matter of time. Uh, before we're able to prove reasonable doubt uh, that uh, uh, he is that repeat offender, why don't you, uh, in your alternatives uh, programs, see if you can get together with him and persuade him that there's a better way uh, uh, desistance from crime solves the problem uh, for us and for him and his family. Undoubtedly, they don't want school expulsions, ending up in, uh, in prison, and, and so on. Uh, and so uh, a conference process is put in place by alternatives. Uh, their program, uh, putting people, helping people with job search and training so they can get jobs, secure housing, and so on for the, for the family, swing into uh, action. So a preventive uh, approach. And I, I wrote about this though a, a long time ago in that book, Restorative Justice and Responsive Regulation, where, where I talked, for example, about the experience of Tasmania, where until the end of the 19th century, the majority of the population was still descended from uh, convicts, uh, and the most serious convicts that went to Australia, and also the, the political prisoners who went to Australia, a lot of them in both categories are uh, Irish, uh, and by the end of the, the 19th century and the early 20th century, Tasmania is actually one of the lowest crime places you can find anywhere on this planet. You know, they go for a period of 15 years without a single homicide occurring in Tasmania, for example. And uh, uh, how is this accomplished? Well, one of the ways Australian criminologists and historians think that was accomplished is that uh, uh, police, who also tended to be ex-convicts, uh, would go around to them and say, hey, we hear on the street that you're having difficult, difficulty getting employment and you're turning your hand to some of your old uh, uh, criminal <coughs> trades and we want to warn you off that. We want to support you in the, in the, in the process of finding alternative. So this was, this was the same kind of approach. And a, you know, my advocacy in this book was to say, well, contemporary police should do rather more of that. They, they all do have, in this era of intelligence-led policing, their list of people who they think are responsible for a high proportion of the crime, who they're mainly targeting to seek to lock them up and to reduce the crime rate on their patch through incapacitation. But this, uh, that was the, the example, came from rural Bangalore, and I must say, I, I say nice things about people from Northern Ireland, but one way which to Australian they seem very peculiar people is in their concept of the rural. I looked up Bangor and it's a city of some 65,000 people 
that is 13.9 miles from the centre of uh, Belfast that takes 22 minutes to drive it. <laughs> that as a rural space seems <laughs> odd, but what, what was said in the conversation around the table uh, at Alternative for someone from Belfast said, so, well, you know, that sort of thing uh, you know, does happen in Belfast, but a lot less in, in Belfast than rural areas uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, like, like beautiful, uh, beautiful Bangor. So, uh, the, the, the possibility of prevention having a different role is one of the things I've learned on this trip. And I've just come from the, uh, from the work, uh, workshop on self-initiated uh, family group conferences by a family group <coughs> conference in Northern Ireland. Where there's, where, 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 and, and there the thought occurred to me, well, families probably know that they are, that one of their members is on that group of people who is likely to be about to be, suffer a school expulsion, uh, end up in prison because they are, they do have a heroin habit and are engaging in repeat burglaries. They're likely to know exactly the same thing. So why not a more <laughs> a radical voluntarism that is, is not only family led, but family group conferencing that is family initiated, which is a more radical conception of empowerment and also can connect into that Bangor story of a more, uh, probably a, a, it, it's better for a group like Alternatives to do that work than the police doing themselves as in the, as in the Tasmanian model. Last time I was here, I visited uh, uh, restorative uh, uh, justice, Northern Ireland, Harry Maguire and his team, he had, I had a sit down like that with them. One of the stories they told was about uh, it still being the case uh, in their community that uh, many people will not refer their victimisation to the police, lack of trust in the police, feeling that that's the wrong thing <coughs> to do, to involve the, uh, the police and this was particularly in relation to cases of domestic violence. And they were talking about the paradox that in putting on a community restorative conference approach to domestic violence, you know, one of the advantages of what they were able to put together is that they were able to put together first responders who would be people rather close to the, <coughs> uh, the, the, the victim of the domestic violence a woman who lives next door, another woman who lives across the street, uh, and an alarm button that could be pushed on the phone so that they would immediately come to the home as soon as the, uh, uh, the, 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 the woman who'd been victimised in the past was concerned about being victimised uh, uh, in future. And that would be a quicker response that would occur 24-7 compared to the response, the state response, how quick the state response would be and how unsettling the state response would be compared with the community response. And as we uh, uh, began to uh, roll out uh, the really interested in uh, Murray Kingdon's uh, uh, presentation on, on gendered violence in the, in the, in the last session, there, there is uh, that rippling out of lessons of that sort, a lot of them coming
which are giving people confidence to say, we, well, in some ways, if we are offering both improved access to the justice of restorative justice and improved access to the justice of the courts for women, and they're, they're, that's done in a mutually enabling way, uh, we, we can get richer justice of both uh, kinds. And that's been an important learning from, uh, uh, from, uh, from here. Another important preventive learning that's relevant to the concern that many feminists have or many people on the left have about restorative justice for corporate and white collar crime. For example, it's similar that, that uh, these are abusers of power and you need deterrence as the language that uh, 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 some of them will be, for some of them will be the only language they understand, which is, I, I think, particularly true of some forms of uh, corporate and organised crime. One of the important empirical results from our program of research in Canberra, the, the randomised controlled trials that Heather Strang and Lawrence Sherman led, was that when offenders, when 1,400 offenders randomly assigned to a restorative justice conference versus a standard Canberra uh, criminal trial, that those who were randomly uh, assigned to a restorative justice conference had a much enhanced fear of a subsequent prosecution uh, than those who are randomly assigned to being dealt with by the courts in the normal way. And we'll, those of us who have a lot of experience in the, in the system understand what's going on. And, you know, people are really <coughs> worried about their first encounter with the court system, but once they've come through it, they have this feeling that, hmm, wasn't the end of the world after all. So that the restorative justice approach, whether it's with regard to domestic violence or any other kind of corporate crime or any other kind of offender, can actually sharpen, well, empirically in this research, does sharpen the sword of deterrence. Whereas overuse of the criminal sanction in finding that optimal mix between access to restorative justice and access to the to the justice of the courts, overuse of the punitive justice of, of the court can actually blunt uh, the uh, deterrent, uh, uh, deterrent sword. And I think we don't talk about that uh, aspect enough as, uh, as restorative justice thinkers. Restorative justice is, is also, it's not as if restorative justice is a, a better form of rehabilitation or incapacitation uh, or it, it, what, what it is is a better delivery vehicle of these things. That what we know <coughs> from the meta-analyses is that if you have a good rehabilitation program, if you, if you have a good form of situational crime prevention, there are things that you can do after your burglary to harden, target harden your home so you're less likely to have a second burglary in the next uh, uh, six months that a restorative justice conference can be a su superior delivery vehicle for motivating the getting of those things done. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of the power. It's not, a, it's not a question of the context between is restorative justice better or is some uh, rehabilitation program like a social cognitive approach or a safety planning approach to domestic violence better. The question is more is uh, the restorative justice approach 
to delivery of the conversation about whether that safety planning should occur, whether that social cognitive rehabilitation program, whether Alcoholics Anonymous is a good idea or not, will make it more likely that that program will actually be completed. And that's an important empirical uh, finding from that perspective. I'm talking about how to scale up uh, restorative justice. And, you know, people think that we have terrific programs in, in Canberra because we've been a centre of research on restorative justice for a long time. But it's in, the, in, a, in a way, our history has been a curse uh, for us, in a, a, and, and your history has been different for you in a positive way that I want to talk about a bit. So that very early on, talking 1993, 1994, we decided that th there were some good theoretical reasons why our restorative conferencing approach might be more, more effective, especially with uh, violent crime. Uh, so we did this uh, sequence of, got funding for the sequence of randomised controlled trials in Canberra. Naturally, that was a state-based form of restorative justice because to get the funding at the level that, required, that was required for that big science, well, you know, we, we, we needed to go to the state and persuade the state that this, this would be a better program for the state. And so we ended up with a statist kind of restorative justice uh, program, programming where the civil society piece was too thin. And then we moved to seeing that problem and, and building a Canberra restorative community approach. But, you know, kind of the separation between the two, the Canberra restorative community and, and the, uh, uh, the state-based approach haven't been linked up uh, enough. And we can see the history of, of, of England in a similar light, restorative justice there. And, and again, our research group was implicated in that because we were able to persuade uh, Tony Blair and particularly through the good offices of uh, Cherie uh, Blair and some chief constables in the UK that it would be a really good idea to replicate these Canberra experiments. So there was very substantial uh, British government funding uh, for rolling out a series of randomised controlled trials of restorative justice there. And again, that created uh, an impetus for restorative justice on the other side of your patch of water that was mm, uh, overly uh, statist and has possibly uh, suffered somewhat for that. And the third example is China, where again, funded by the Ford Foundation, they did eight huge randomised controlled trials for restorative justice. Uh, various uh, people, and I was involved in this with myself, were able to persuade the Chinese Communist Party that this would be a, a good idea. To some degree, they thought it was a good idea for the wrong reasons, because they thought their strike-hard policies with criminal justice was getting community pushback, the same reason why they've been reducing the execution rate dramatically in China during the last decade uh, or so. But for, for whatever reasons, they were persuaded also partly on the basis of their not well done, not very well done, but rather massive 
randomized controlled trials in, in Beijing, in Shanghai, Guangzhou, or Nanjing, the eight largest cities uh, in, the, in the country. But again, it led to a status kind of restorative justice, you know, the most massive restorative justice program in the world in terms of scale. So I, I shouldn't have put that graph up yet because what we have is a couple of million uh, criminal mediation, the 2012 <coughs> criminal mediation law, which directed all criminal justice uh, agencies in China to, to have criminal mediation as a preferred path and prosecution as a, as a, as a last resort. But those couple of million cases are dwarfed by these uh, uh, more like nine million cases that every year are going to uh, Chinese people's mediation for civil and minor criminal cases. So in China, serious domestic violence cases will be viewed as minor criminal cases and, and they will be going here. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the domestic violence will be de dealt with by uh, uh, people's uh, mediation and, and a lot of the civil offences are actually organised crime uh, offences and tax offences and, uh, and so on. So there's massive scale about, you know, one could take pride in this in a way and say, wow, well, you know, this is the game, this is the biggest game in, uh, in, in town, in the global system, and this is what we should be, uh, should be focusing on. Uh, but it suffers from a, a very thin social movement footprint. So you've got a status reform driven by the Communist Party of China talking to technocratic social scientists nationally and internationally, people like myself, and, 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 and thin engagement of social movement uh, 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 politics, uh, massive scaling, scaling up of ritualistic forms of restorative justice. I'm now moving to uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, uh, this, is, this, this photograph is, is about the uh, reconciliation program that Ali Goha has been involved in, uh, in leading for a, a, a decade or so now. In the Taliban-controlled part of the <coughs> northwest frontier between Pakistan and Afghanistan, program work on both sides of the borders among the Pakhtun uh, tribal people who have their own long-standing Jirga uh, tribal uh, traditions of restorative justice. But, the, but the, the Jirga leaders have been subject to systematic campaigns of assassination uh, by, the, by the Taliban uh, because the conflict there is very, and in Afghanistan, is very much prosecuted in terms of we have a better justice system to offer for you. We have a less corrupt system. It, it actually is a less corrupt Taliban justice is a less corrupt justice system than the justice system of the Afghan state. At least the people in the surveys conducted by the US surveys conducted by the Asia Foundation, people believe that to be the case. And so, uh, uh, so there's been this shift in thinking that, you know, can we offer protection uh, by stopping the Taliban from wiping out uh, the Jirga facilitators, bringing it into the wall. And this is a police station. That's actually the second wall. There's another bigger wall outside 
with uh, police officers with machine guns uh, mounted on turrets uh, throughout the police station so that the, the, this restore, traditional restorative justice is then conducted inside the security of the police station. But you see all the participants are male and that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the, the Jergo tradition. And uh, here's a well-known uh, well uh, Pakun elder on the, on the left here trying to protect his security by trying to look like a local, uh, not, very, uh, not very successfully. And again, you see a totally, totally male process going on uh, uh, here. But in terms of the gender politics uh, of it, it's kind of interesting because they train the police officer who's present in this process to represent the state as a check and balance on traditional justice. One of the problems with Pakhtun traditional justice is that a reconciliation, say the kind of feud that was discussed yesterday that was the subject of a restorative justice uh, conference uh, in the Republic of Ireland uh, prison to try to reduce the number of murders that are occurring between these two. A, a lot of these cases are, are like that and a lot of them are, are, are also about trying to establish a local peace with Taliban or Taliban breakaway uh, elements and, and a lot of these conflicts will be resolved by a bride being handed over from one tribal group to another tribal group who've been uh, shooting at each other. But what the police officer who shows up at these things has been trained to do is when this is proposed as a resolution to jump up and say, look, this is forbidden by the policies of our reconciliation program here today. It's also forbidden by the law of Pakistan. And it's also forbidden by Sharia law. In the West, we, you know, we often tend to project this as a Sharia law thing. It's actually a tribal law thing. It's actually uh, outlawed by Sharia law. So what you're trying to do in the informal, in the more multiplex informal justice process is bring the authority of multiple legal systems to bear rather than just the unified uh, criminal law of the, of the Pakistan state. And the gender balance is second, secondly because it's not really a practical solution in some parts, in, in other parts it is, to have women uh, and even uh, female chairs of the does happen in Pakistan, but in many areas that's just not culturally feasible. But what is feasible is to set up new women's jurgas. So the white beards of the traditional male jurga is complemented by the white hairs of the female elders of the community and then there are meetings between the two uh, restorative groups. In Afghanistan, there's also I've been involved in a process with drawing up a restorative justice law uh, that would regulate these jurgas <coughs> and jurors. And one of the interesting things that happened in the drafting of these laws is that uh, uh, one of the tribal representatives on the committee that was drawing it up said, well, I think what we need to do, this law needs to ban people taking money for doing, uh, for, for, for doing mediations or restorative justice of any kind because that's the heart of corruption. It's the fact that people are taking money to do justice rather than, rather than
doing the restorative justice because they are serving God's purpose uh, by, by doing it. This was their way of thinking. Of course, I was inclined to say, you know, voluntarism is a wonderful thing, but it seems like, a, to me, to my Western eyes, a bit of an overreach of the criminal law to criminalise uh, the offering of, uh, of mediation services. And some of my best friends get, 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 get paid money for convening uh, mediations. And, and that view prevailed in the end, but it was a near-run near thing. And the interesting thing we can learn from Afghanistan is, is that the cultural importance to them uh, that being engaged with restorative justice, it's important that it be a culturally inclusive thing that everyone participates in as a gift. And not only will the facilitators not be paid, but if there's a poor person who can't pay the full compensation, they'll put their own money in to compensate the victim fully to the extent that the victim should be compensated and then negotiate with the offender for the offender to pay back as much as they're able, whenever they're able, to the usually rather richer male person who will be the facilitator. So, in thinking about how to do restorative justice better, we start by asking what's working for local people around here in local meaningful uh, ways. Northern Ireland, I think, was brave in asking, just as these guys were asking, if there are some local ways of dealing with this threat of the Taliban killing our mediators uh, and getting local buy-in to a process we, where we could preserve some sort of access to justice for uh, people. Here, you, you were brave in drawing on your local strengths about uh, 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 a, a restorative process, pro approach to ending punishment meetings. And in our conference, we were talking about hey, principle building, uh, principles-driven accreditation, the holism of your vision. Uh, Debbie and Harry spoke on the first day that punishment, uh, partnership with the state as the key thing. And I think that is the key thing that distinguishes you. As opposed to what we have in Canberra, what you have is all these various organisations that, that I have described that have the capacity to put on restorative conferences from civil society attract funding from various places to do that, attract volunteers from various places to contribute uh, to, that, uh, uh, to that work, but with a partnership from the state, with funding supported by the state, with state buy-in. So, you know, that's what's missing in, in China. And in most of the national cases that I, I, I move, move around is, is Northern Ireland's coupling of a strong movement for restorative justice in civil society with a strong movement for restorative justice inside the state. And New Zealand and uh, uh, Nova Scotia, wherever Jennings would be, another example, you can talk to her about that. So perhaps what we need to do is aim breathtakingly high uh, toward a new set of ambitions for restorative Northern Ireland. So I raise a question like, after your election, if there is impunity for any security sector criminal offences that occurred before 
uh, before 2000, what will be the response of the social movement to restorative justice for whether there should be some sort of justice process for alleged crimes of Bloody Sunday, uh, for example. And in other parts of the world, of course, uh, what has happened in Syria, in our part of the world, <coughs> is citizen-led uh, citizen uh, truth commissions producing citizen-led uh, reports. Uh, partnership with the state uh, to integrate restorative schools. And Mayor Thompson's presentation on that was, was so interesting. So that remains one of your challenges, uh, having more and more schools uh, learning the principles of restorative justice and putting them into action uh, in, the, uh, in the schools. But also perhaps the, the challenge of, of building new schools. I, I mean, is it still the case that 90% of children are in basically segregated, overwhelmingly Catholic or overwhelmingly Protestant schools. That's still the case. So very much connected to that challenge that you have to rise to of having children, many of your children, at, at, attending schools which are 50% Catholic and 50% Protestant, building schools across the peace walls and so on, which you've already done with some of your health centres so that children can enter from both sides of the, of the, of the wall and so on. <coughs> Again, in our school works, we've done some really inspiring things in Canberra, uh, but our disappointments have, have, have been that there, there has not been that partnership that, that, uh, that uh, uh, Harry and Debbie spoke about in the opening session, that, that the, the, the state is not funding uh, you know, that, that what, what we have happening is we tend to attract champions for restorative justice in our Canberra schools who are some of the best teachers in the school and in no time at all uh, they will set up a wonderful restorative program in the school but they'll be get promoted to be a principal at another school down the road and then the other teachers will be saying, wow, she did a fantastic job and we'd like to keep it going but I'm just struggling to keep up with my teaching and take care, of, uh, take care of my children at home and I don't have the capacity as a person to step up and be the kind of inspiring champion that she was. And so 10 years on we go back and we find that that restorative program that was so inspiring is, is basically no longer there. So for sustainability there, I think again state buy-in is needed the state needs to say, well, there will be a position, half a position, which is devoted to being a restorative justice teacher who will be training all of the other teachers in how to do, who will be training the children in how to do restorative justice conference and who will be leading <coughs> the provision uh, of the restorative approach. And that's a big challenge that lies before us, before us everywhere. If we think about the, uh, the war crimes uh, challenge, uh, you know, we, we move from cases like Bougainville, which could easily descend into civil war again in a week when they have their referendum, as inspiring <coughs> as it has been as a restorative case, uh, in scale a bit like uh, uh, Northern Ireland and South Africa, Colombia in between, but the massive challenge of how you would do restorative justice, how, how you would pass your learnings 
about post-conflict restorative justice here to a case of the scale of Democratic Republic of Congo, for example. Colombia is the really interesting challenge of the moment. I was there in June, and I'm not right up to date since June on what's happening, but the first, 30, the 30, the first case, which will probably involve 32 FARC uh, defendants, the, more or less their entire uh, central committee, uh, th th they are likely to make formal criminal uh, admissions. This is uh, in relation to uh, 5,000 cases of kidnapping, which they have discussed together, that X person who has lots of money or who is a presidential candidate ought to be, uh, ought to be uh, kidnapped. And they will, some of those victims of the kidnapping died, uh, and they will make formal cr criminal admissions is what's expected. I met these guys, I met the, the head of the FARC, I think that's likely to happen. And I know people from here have been over to Colombia uh, helping them with this, uh, with, with this uh, difficult journey. And next up, we also met with uh, a lot of generals, uh, colonels, who will also be making formal criminal admissions for cases, you know, in some cases might be argued to be genocide cases, certainly crimes against humanity cases. So they had an incident where the, the, the military leadership decided it would be a good idea to assassinate all members of one political party and, and many members of the families of, of those, all of those members of one uh, political party. So the inter they're interesting legal questions. They're, they're willing to admit to homicide, will they admit to a crime, will they make formal criminal admissions to a crime against humanity or even genocide in relation to a, a matter such as uh, that. So this is the really interesting space to watch here. 3,000 FARC have been uh, released from prison as, <coughs> as, as part of this very interesting peace agreement which has been entrenched into the Colombian Constitution. Such hard questions they confront. How do you, how do you select which of five or 6,000 victims, which of their family supporters will show up in the, in the courtroom for the restore, what they're calling a restorative sanctions hearing? Uh, what sort of restorative circles are going to precede uh, these uh, hearings? The idea is that the restorative sanctions will be not like the you know, you know, maximum 100 hours of community service that we think of, but a five to eight years uh, restorative sanction where certain kinds of restorative activities are privileged. For example, the clearing of mines, a dangerous activity in very mountainous uh, areas of the Andes, which is not very attractive work for anyone. So the peace agreement specifies that five <coughs> to eight years of of uh, voluntary work clearing mines would be one of the examples of privileged kinds of community service restorative uh, uh, sanctions. Again, that's breaking a very different kind of hybridity ground for restorative justice. How do we ask millions of victims of a war uh, what they want restored? Again, schools are an interesting space uh, for a more ambitious kind of restorative justice. Here in South Africa, they have a project where school children, uh, you know, most victims of the conflict in, uh, in South Africa did not appear 
before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Many of them wanted to and didn't have the opportunity. Many of them did not want to. Many women did not want to speak about their rape uh, to Archbishop Tutu and so on. So the idea is that uh, for, uh, for those uh, survivors of uh, uh, crimes of apartheid, that perhaps the grandchildren, uh, that perhaps the granddaughter of a woman who was raped uh, in the 1970s or the 1980s will approach their grandmother and say, we know you didn't want to wail about your rape for Archbishop Tutu, but would you tell your story for fam the family's memory? We know we, you did not want your story to go into the Apartheid Museum records, but will you allow your story to go in the family records by my doing my school project and filming an interview with you where you tell your story? And then gathering together from all of those videos with assistance of the teachers, just what are the, what are the things that those women and those men most want to be restored as a result of their victimisation. Uh, you know, that was a possibility that we were discussing with this problem of scaling up in Colombia. And this, that scalability challenge is not just a, a challenge in cases like Democratic Republic of Congo and, and Cambodia. Think of the scale of the restorative justice challenge in our universities. In Australia and the United States in recent times, there's been a lot of survey research on the scale of the problem of sexual assault in our universities. And for the female students, it's a, it's a, in both countries, it's about 6% of female students every year are suffering a sexual assault. Multiply that by an average of four years in university, some of them going on to masters and, and PhD, some of them missing uh, a year, and the probability that your daughter going to an Australian or a US university will suffer sexual assault, most of the date rape from, uh, at the hands of another student, is shockingly, unacceptably high, and the response of my own universities, all universities in Australia, is very limited uh, and uh, uh, and inadequate. Uh, to the, the scale of the problem, so in my own university, about a thousand students uh, suffering sexual assault every year uh, at our university. Basically, the university is not willing to mobilise the level of support resources to have a credible response to the, uh, to the problem. And we've been lobbying for the university's regulator to mandate and access for restorative justice uh, conferencing for those uh, who want it. Because very few of these students choose to report their victimisation to the police. A tiny, tiny uh, proportion. And to a certain extent here as well, it's a bit like the Afghanistan learning for me that uh, the, the only solution that can work has to have a lot of volunteerism in it. Take first responding. This Australian data shows that the first responder to uh, uh, rape of university students is almost never the police. It is almost never a rape crisis centre uh, or a professional university counsellor. Who is it? 
a fellow student. So one of the responses that has been talked about, so we've got to train our students, make available, we don't have to train all of our students, but our students have to know that they have friends who have been trained in how to be good uh, first responders. Uh, and uh, volunteerism at scale is, uh, is what I'm uh, moving toward uh, raising here. Um, so that this tracks us back to the school. If every school child is, has learned how to be a restorative justice <coughs> facilitator, most of them will decide, this is not the sort of thing that I'm good at, but my view is in any school classroom, there'll be some kids in the, in the, in the school class who will be better restorative justice facilitators than me, because I'm not a very good one because I've been a university professor talking at people for too long, speaking of which I, I need to stop at this, uh, uh, at, at this point. So that's a vision for scaling up. Uh, growing the restorative cities movement is another vision uh, for, uh, uh, for scaling up and connecting up those two visions. So the, the, uh, the restorative cities movement activists are going into the schools to talk to the students and give classes and to recruit the graduating students because the restorative justice movement in, in many countries is ageing. Uh, this is less true for you here in Northern Ireland but very true for us. And another one is this idea, which I won't talk about, of youth development circles replacing parent-teacher counsellors with uh, parent-teacher conferences with uh, <coughs> once kids get to be about 13, where you build around them elderly people who are retired but who, who have good job placement networks, who stick with the young person talking about their problem, not stigmatising them because the idea that this is a universal program that happens with every child in the school so that the idea is that these older Australians in our case will be supporting helping the journey of young people in the transition from high school to work uh, because the poorest kids don't have the networks to make that happen for them and then those kids will also be part of the community of care in our shocking aged care system which is failing to deliver accountable quality of care uh, to our older people uh, later in life. These are just options, but my pitch to you is for the younger generation that here is to aim uh, breathtakingly high because what we've achieved in this generation, there are so many of these kinds of opportunities in these spaces for you to grab and do a, a lot better than we've been able to do. So that brings us to the end of episode four of Talking Peace. Uh, great input from John Braithwaite. Let us know what you think. Uh, hit us up in the comments. And if you haven't subscribed, then you can do that on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com forward slash Talking Peace. Or you can check out our website, alternativesrj.org. Make sure you join us next week, where we'll be joined by some students from a local organization who came in to learn a bit, a bit more about what we do and how they can utilise restorative practice in their youth work. So that'll be a worthwhile conversation to listen in on. So until then, uh, we hope you have a 
good week, whatever you're up to, and we'll catch you all on the next episode. All right, take it easy. Thank you.